As you're seated, turn your Bible to the book of Genesis, and we'll be looking at Genesis chapter 1. We've been uh, looking at Genesis over the last few weeks. We're going to work all the way through chapter 11 over the course of this current study. Uh, we've seen God as creator. We've seen the necessity of God as creator. We've seen that God is the creator of light, and then we saw uh, God's creation over six days of the creation of the heaven, the earth, the forming it and filling it. And then today what we really do is come to the pinnacle of it. When we come to, to, to the peak, we come to the climax, the big part of the story, which is the creation of man, the creation of male and female. We're going to be focusing on that sixth day of creation, um, starting in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Genesis 1, starting in verse 26 through 31. This is God's word. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth. And every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. The flowers fade, the grass withers, but the word of our God stands forever. Would you pray together with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the mysteries that you reveal inside your scripture. God, we wouldn't know anything about creation uh, had you not revealed it. We weren't there. But God, in your grace, you've revealed uh, creation to us. You've revealed yourself to us in this narrative. And we pray, oh God, that as we consider it, contemplate it, weigh it for our lives and our world, our church, our society, Father, that you would lead us into a greater understanding of all truth. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, who is, who is man or who, who are we? The way that we answer that question of who is man is going to change uh, the perspective that we have of life. I mean, are we animals? Are we reincarnated spirits? Or, or are we created beings created in the image of God? I mean, these are matters of fundamental identity that are going to change the way that we understand ourselves, that are going to change the way that we understand our world. I mean, who, who are we? Do we have a purpose or not? Are we a plague on the earth or are we trash? Are we God? Are we the image of God? Again, how we answer these things helps to form the way that we live. Uh, false beliefs about human nature keep us from fulfilling God's purposes for us. That's why God gave us Genesis. That's why he gave it to the nation of Israel when he did. 
Remember that God inspired uh, the writing of Genesis? Uh, just at the time when Israel was headed into the promised land. Uh, they had spent 400 years in slavery in the nation of Egypt. Do you think that something like slavery would have changed their perception of who they were? Of human nature? Of human life? I mean, 400 years of slavery, Israel needed to remember who they were. They had dignity, the value of human life, even the value of their enemies' lives. It would be very important not only to understand themselves, but to help them to think of matters of, of justice for their own nation. How would they treat people in their nation? How would they treat people around them? For their 400 years of slavery, they had been told that they were nothing more than slaves. They were not good for any more than that. And that way of thinking tends to seep its way into a, a person's brain, even to a nation's brain. And there could be an inclination to go back to that old way of slave thinking. Needed to think where their value came from, from being in the image of God. I mean, how important is this for us today? You know, where does true human value, true human dignity come from? Well, it came from God creating man in his image. That's what we see in our passage today. That this is the, the source of human value. This is the source of human dignity for every person on the planet. The way that we think about others is going to affect the way that we treat them. It's going to affect the way that we think about the value of others' lives. It's going to affect the way we think about ourselves. Take slavery. You know, the awful history of chattel slavery was laced with the idea that one race of people was inferior to another. Many war crimes are perpetuated through the world on the premise that the enemy is somewhat less than human. Or think about fascism. It teaches that one a certain group of people is better and superior to others. Even the worldwide caste system, where that prevails in many countries that is built on the nation, some people are more valuable than others. That upper caste of people are more valuable than lower castes. This has been part of... Um, but monarchical systems and stuff like that, which we would have happened around the time of Genesis. There may be kings, they are the image of God, but the people, well, they're just the people. You know, people believe these lesser things about others, often to justify their own horrible behavior. If they want to do something bad, um, all they have to do is to deny the image of God and the people they injure. We make people uh, less than human when we want to hurt them. Now, on the other side, uh, there are many who practically want to worship humanity. Uh, maybe we all do. Maybe we all have an elevated view of our, ourselves. We elevate our own thinking, our own ideas. We think that we are greater or more capable than we are. And so that becomes a practical form of worship. The Bible reminds us that we are created in the image of God. And what does it mean to be made in God's image. And here's my best take on it. So we look to the text here. My best take on it is um, that when we are created in God's image, we are created as mirrors to his glory. We are created as mirrors to reflect God's love, his power, his glory to the world and to one another. Or maybe, maybe a prism. You know, we, we understand who he is and we reflect that out to the rest of the world. Now, all of us probably saw an image of ourselves this morning. You know, when you got up, you would have looked in the mirror as you got dressed. You wanted to make sure everything was just right, that the image, that, you know, that your image, which is in the screen, the image that others would see in you was just right. 
You know, photographs are images. They capture what we look like at certain times, even those times that we wish our picture wouldn't be captured. The wish, photo we wish didn't exist, but an image of us at a particular time and particular place. Well, being in God's image has a bigger kind of glory than a picture or a mirror, though. The image of God is to show forth God's glory, like that prism, the pass it, spread it into the world. You think about the moon, maybe as we think about this, we remember that the moon is not its own source of light. You know, it stands there in the night sky, everything else is dark, and it's just majestic there, especially that full moon. It's just bright. It, it brings light to, um, to your surroundings, and it helps you see better than those times when it's not there. But we're reminded that no light actually comes from the moon, but it reflects the sun. It shines forth the light of the sun bouncing off of itself down to us um, on this planet. And we get a great sense of its wonder and splendor, but really it's just a reflection of the glory of the sun. In the same way, we don't have our own light, but we are called to be reflections of the very light of God. We're created for that, and indeed his glory has been designed to shine through us. This way that we view humanity is also going to affect the way that we yourselves. We, we may know people, even ourselves might think this way, and they have a lack of identity. They don't know who they are. They lack self-confidence. And when suffering or difficulty comes in, they end up giving up on themselves. Some people think they're trash without value in the world, and, and that's a lie. When people are abused, told by others that they are, are worthless, they begin to think they're failures. It's a constant message from others who uh, should be encouraging them. All those statements are lies and ones that keep us from living the lives that we should and keeps us from doing the things that we should be doing and reflecting the glory of God. There can be also a sense of entitlement, which also keeps us from thinking the way that we should or doing things that we should when we think that we're overly important when we think that we are entitled to a sort of comfort and ease, then we end up taking advantage of others and fail to do what we should be doing. So it matters greatly what we think about human nature so that we can treat others better, we can think of ourselves rightly. I mean, you are the image bearer of God. I mean, just think about that. You are the image bearer of God, and that is amazing. Male and female, man, that generic word that's given there is a reflection of, of every person is created as the image of God. It's one of the most wonderful truths about you. But it's also something that comes with a lot of responsibility. We'll look at that. But that's what we want to look at today, what it means to be created in God's image. I want to highlight three things today. The first thing is that man is unique among all of creation. As we read through, last week we read through all the creation days. We see in the sixth day, we've noticed it last week, you notice it today as we read it, is that the creation of man is different uh, from so many of the other days. The first and biggest of them is that of all the things that God created, this is the only, uh, man is the only thing that God, the only part of his creation that God put in his own image. He didn't say about that any, any other part of creation, only man. We could look at it again in verse 26 when we read, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them take dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So it's the only thing that God created in his image. 
The second thing we see in verse 26 is he gave man dominion over the animals of the earth. We're going to get back to that in a little bit, but, you know, we notice that's one of the differences. Another difference that we see in the uniqueness of man is that the delight that God t- takes in his creation of man. If you look at verse 27, you can see that God changes and, the, and the, the text changes in the way it communicates. If you have an ESV as I do, it, it even offsets the section from the rest of the text, indicating that this is, that this is poetry. The whole chapter is written as carefully formed narrative, carefully formed uh, um, story of the things that had happened. But here you get into verse 27 and, and the chapter bursts out in song, singing about what God had done. It's the only poetry that's in the chapter. Verse 27 says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. You can think about how different this song is than what happened before. God doesn't sing at the end of Genesis 1-1, the creation of the heaven and the earth. He doesn't, uh, even with the creation of light on the first day, you know, God moves past it quickly saying it is good and going on to the next day. And we see this through all these days until the creation of man and he stops and sings. The passage goes on in verse 31 where we read that God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. God said, it is good six times already. But here, on the seventh time, he says, it was very good. That's his final judgment. It's his final verdict. It's the finishing point of all this creation. It's the highlights of all the things that he had done. It took the creation of man to get this response from God of being very good. Man more glorious than the solar system, more glorious than light, more glorious than all the wonderful animals that God had created. He sings and says it is very good. should affect the way that we see people, shouldn't it? Every baby that we welcome in the world, that's the image of God. Every person that we meet on the street, that is the image of God. You, your spouse, your children, those are the image of God. Even your enemy, the image of God. As C.S. Lewis writes in The Weight of Glory, he says, There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is ours, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. It does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be of that kind, and it is, in fact, the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. Man created in the image of God, unique and privileged in creation. That's the first thing. The second thing we want to see is that man has the mandate and the capacity to rule. So we need to delve a little bit into this as we look at what it means to be created in God's own image. Commentators have noted that the term image uh, refers to something like of a, of a vice regent or, or a um, substitute, you know, you know, substitute leader. You know, a king can't be ev- everywhere, so we'd put images throughout. And, and that those uh, images would um, represent them in each of those vicinities. I haven't heard this story, and this just came to me. I heard this story about how um, some false religions deal with um, productivity 
inside of Asian nations. I can't remember what nation it was, but it told this story that they were concerned that some of the people downstream were lazy. And so what they did is they uh, put these idols, these false gods, at different tributaries down the river. And the idea was as long as this god is here over watching this uh, area of rice which needs to be cultivated, that the workers would work harder. Because again, the image of a god was there watching over them. Right? This is uh, somewhat common inside of, uh, certainly inside of ancient worlds. And so, when the Bible says that man is created in God's image, it means that Man has been placed upon the earth to represent God's interests to the planet. And since in that story, we're sort of each other's accountability. But more than that, God has interests in the world. And man is to be a caretaker. Man is to be a ruler. He's to be a leader. He or, or, or she, because men and women both are created in God's image, are, are put where he or she is to do the will of God as if God was standing there doing it. I mean, it puts a weightiness on the things that we do. And so while we'll never ascend above God, that we have been placed on this planet to care for all of creation as God would care for it. So we call that dominion mandate as God gives uh, Adam dominion over the world around him. It's our call to care for the resources of the earth in such a way that God's interests are represented, the people are cared for, the creation's beauty shows. If you think about that, it's really pretty amazing. I mean, in six days, God creates the universe and everything in it, and then in the end, he, he puts it into our hands, and he says, use it, take care of it, cultivate it, do something with this. It's really an amazing thing. I mean, as parents, you ever had teenage kids, and you got to give those keys over? I mean, that's a hard, you know, Passover to give, and, and here God gives us the world. Amazing matter. Of trust. I think Psalm 8 captures this so well. Psalm 8, starting in verse 1, it says, speaking about the glory of God, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens out of the mouths of babies and infants. You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. And then the passage, starting in verse 3, goes on to speak of the wonder of the human race. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Because he does, even with all the glories of the sun, the moon, and the stars. Verse 5 says, you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. And then here it is, we see, starting in verse 6, the calling that God gives to us, and gives to man. Verse 6, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and all oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The Bible's clear that the earth and everything in it belongs to the Lord God. Psalm 24, 1 says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell in. And so God has put us into this world to care for what's his. He did not give up the rights of ownership to it. We always remember that in everything we do. God is the owner of all things. He tells us not to exploit his resources, but to care for them, to use them for his glory flourishing the people around us. So we've talked about God's image. We've looked at the uniqueness and his capacity to rule. Number three, we want to look at the similarity of man to God. Man is similar to God. When we think about man being created in God's image, we, we often think about what does it mean that man is like God and, and how is man like God? And I don't think that's the main purpose of being created in God's image. You know, again, the main thing is reflecting God's glory into the world to rule, but, but, but it's still important. In fact, if you look at Genesis 5, 
We see that being created in likeness of God is, it, it, or creating the image of God is a reflection of his likeness, right? It shows that we are like him in many ways. Genesis 5, verse 1 says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, right? He uses that word instead of image at this point, likeness of God. He goes on to say male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man, uh, and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image. So that idea of image and likeness again together, and he named him Seth. So, so we see that to be created in the image of God means that we have a likeness together. And so what, what are those ways that we are like God? The first thing we want to look at today is personhood. We're like God in that we are our persons. Verse 26, if you read that, it says, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. You know, he talks about, he says, let us. Who is this us that's here? We believe that he is talking about the triune godhood, Godhead, the, the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all participants in creation. We saw the Holy Spirit present in creation in Genesis 1-2. We see the working of, of God in speaking. We see in John 1-3 of Jesus creating all things. You know, all these are active in the creation of the world. And so here we see this divine Godhead who has lived together in, in uh, perfect, eternal fellowship, always talking to one another, consult together in the creation of mankind. You know, these, the, the fact that we have a, a God who is three in person it helps us remember that God is personal. That personality is one of his attributes. He's not just a force, but he is one who deals with his creation in a personal and a relational way. He has desires, he has thoughts, he has a self-consciousness. He, um, you know, he even speaks to man personally. If you look at, at Genesis 1, he speaks to him directly as a separate entity to himself. Some religions don't recognize that man is separate from God. You can take some of the pantheistic religions around the world. They say that we are all God. Everything is God, and you're just an extension of, of Godhood. Well, that sounds strange to us, but it's an extension of all natural religions, even things like atheistic evolution. The modern tendency to think that we can define our own gender and purpose and identity, that's an expression of how we think that we are extensions of God. We can define and even name ourselves. Our own culture turns this way in so many ways. The Bible's clear. That when God speaks to Adam, that Adam is different. He is separate from God. Notice he uses the word you. In verse 29, he speaks to God as you over there. We're not extensions of God, but we are separate from him. Because of that, we can have a personal relationship with him. We have someone to cry out to in our times of trouble, to talk to in our prayers, to worship in our songs. Each one of us has been given our own personality. While God differentiates man and woman, creating both in his own image, they have their own personhood. Even there, he created a complementary pair who themselves are persons, able to interact with one another. If you think about it, the, the real existence of personality is, is amazing. You know, you're a person. That's a, just a fascinating thing to think about. And, and I think that only Trinitarian Christianity is able to account for personality. No other religion can, because only Trinitarian Christianity has a personal God. Islam Cannot, Mormonism cannot, Jehovah Witness cannot, pantheism cannot. 
Secular humanism cannot, Marxism cannot, because in order to have a meaningful personality in the universe, one ha must have a personal being who created it. No non-Trinitarian theologies have a basis of personality. That's why those other belief systems tend to be dismissive to, to human personality and brutal to human life. They basically have to pretend that human personality is something. Or maybe they have to import it from some other, other place, but it doesn't come from within the belief system itself. It's something that's wrapped up in the triune creator, God. So personhood is the first thing. Second quality we want to see is rationality. Is the rationality of man. He's a rational creature. We see this in the way that God speaks to the man and to the woman. Verses 28 and 29, he, he speaks to them expecting that they're going to understand the things that he is saying. They have intellect. In chapter 2, we're going to see the man demonstrating that intellect as he names the animals, showing a deep and a comprehensive understanding of what he's seeing and being able to, to give it a name. Man's rationality is also reflected in verses like Colossians 3, 9, and 10, where we see specifically that knowledge is, being part, is part of being created in the image of God. Colossians 3, 9 says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you put off the old self with his practices and have put on the new self. It's going to talk about this new self, right? What's true about this new self? It says, which is being renewed in knowledge after. After what? At the image of his creator. Right? God's man's being in the image of God is knowledge, rationality. I mean, you and I were created to think God's thoughts after him, to take what God has revealed and to understand what he's put, the understanding he's put into that world. How has he designed it? He's even given us instinctual understanding, rational understanding, even emotional understanding of the world and everything in it. And as Colossians says, that this is one of the things that needs to be restored. Instead of looking outside of us to... Um, Instead of looking at ourselves as our own authority, we need to look to God as this authority as we put on Jesus Christ. Our knowledge has to be renewed by Christ, renewed by the word of God. We need to stay teachable to hear the things that he's shown to us in Christ. Well, a third way that man is like God is in his morality. His morality. In Genesis 1.31, again, we read that God said his creation was very good. This must mean that man was righteous when God created him. Men and women uh, believed in the likeness of God, um, or, or they, men and women behaved because they were in the likeness of God, how they were created to behave. They behaved in accordance with obedience to God and his word. If they didn't, you know, God wouldn't have been able to call it very good. Habakkuk 1, 3 uh, says that his eyes are too pure to look upon evil. He wouldn't have been able to say that they were uh, that man's creation was very good if they weren't perfectly righteous, perfectly moral. And that righteousness of God was the same kind of righteousness that man was created with. Ephesians 4.24 shows us that. Ephesians 4.24 says, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God. Oh, okay, likeness of God, what does that mean? True righteousness and holiness. God created us to be like him so that we would love what is good, that we would do what is good, that we do what's right towards God and then towards others. And this really shows how far that we have fallen. And it also shows what we should expect to see change as we grow as, as Christians. Growth in righteousness. Growth in loving what is good. 
Ephesians 4.24 also shows us the third category then about being created in the likeness of God. And, and what he talks about here is his holiness. So, so that's the next way I want to talk about being in God's image is to be separate. God's, uh, the, the likeness of God for man is that he is separate. Man was distinguished from the rest of creation. Just as God is holy and separate from the world he created, so man was distinguished from the rest of the created things. Again, he did not put his image into all creation, but he created man to be above, to be separate, to live up to the holy standards in which God himself dwelled. That's why it's so morally revolting to see people degrade themselves with drinking, with sexual perversion, or other immorality. You know, it's just hard to see because we see why wow, this person is you know, called to holiness, called to separateness, and getting all wrapped up in the muck of this world. That's why abuse is just so offensive. We know that men and women were created for more than these things. Created in the image of God and given God-given sanctity. Because man was created in God's image, he has sacred value. And that's something that wasn't lost when sin came in the world. It's a dignity that should never be forgotten, even in the midst of suffering or difficulty. It's something we need to remember. Every time we get angry at someone, every time someone gets in our way, every time we're denied something we want, every time we want to exert our own personal rights, we need to see the sacred value of the human person before us. Genesis 9-6 speaks about it. Genesis 9-6, God is speaking to Noah after the great flood has come. God says to Noah this, he says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. You know why this word of, of capital punishment? He says this, for God made man in his own image. You know, God gives this system of, of, of justice, a system of, of government. And the principle is that the image of God is to be respected within every human person. The purposeful taking away of human life is in first-degree murder would be capital crime with the, the consequence of the death penalty, that upholding the value of life within God's creation is the highest of moral standards because we're talking about the image of God here. And this speaks to so many issues of our own day. It says something about murder, of course, but also of abortion, about slavery, about racism. Every person, rich or poor, black or white, handicapped or fully capable, inside the womb or outside of it, in the city, in the country, Republican or Democrat, every person has inherent value as an image bearer of God in every life matters. Not just the elites of a culture, not just the healthy and the strong, but every person. Man is created in the likeness of God and has that value. Now before I wrap up, I, I want to just jump into one more thing which is very important. And it really is how the image of God becomes a problem for us. And how it really shows our need of Jesus. You know, we might remember what the Bible tells us. It says the wages of sin is death. The Bible talks at times about hating those who do iniquity. I mean, it has strong words of wrath and judgment and even anger towards sin and those who do sin. I mean, and sometimes we ask this question. Why does he make such a big deal over sin? Why does he make such a big deal out of it? And I think the doctrine of the image of God shows why. Because you remember, God created us to display his glory. He, dis, dis, he created us to display his goodness, his kind intentions of the world. You have God's image. I have God's image. We're creating the image of God. But instead of honoring God, we put this image in the place of God. We've rejected God. We've used his image for our own purposes. And in doing so, we have lied to the world 
about God. I mean, think about it. We have used this very image of God to abuse others, to hoard or to damage resources that others could use. We've used this image for selfish pursuits. We've used it for vainglory. We've used God's image to lie and to cheat and to steal. And we've even used it to disrespect God. We've used the image of God against God. As we look at our neighbor, another person who's been created in the image of God, we've abused them and we've taken advantage of them. And we've used their power against this image. I mean, it is a double horror that we would use the image of God to do evil against another image of God. It's not just we've done bad. It's not just we've um, done some little peccadillo or uh, upset some cosmic sensibility. No. I mean, sin is a cosmic rebellion. And if you're following me and you see the horror of sin, you, you'd see that it is using the tool of God to spite God. And it is the absolute horror of sin. I'm reminded of a story about Alexander the Great. D. James Kennedy tells the story, I'm using his words here. He tells the story to say this. He said, one day, Alexander the Great held court in Nebuchadnezzar's great palace in Babylon. He sat upon the great golden throne, pronouncing sentences for the crimes charged to his soldiers. The sergeant of arms brought one soldier after another, and he read their crimes. No one could deliver them from Alexander's severe judgments. Finally, the sergeant of arms brought in a young Macedonian soldier, and he reads aloud his crime, fleeing in the face of the enemy. This cowardice Alexander could not tolerate. But as he looks at the young soldier's face, Alexander's countenance changes from stern to soft. Smiling, he said to the lad, Son, what is your name? And the boy says softly, Alexander? The smile left the king's face. He said, What did you say? The young man snapped to attention, Alexander, sir. The king turns crimson and he shouts, what is your name? And the boy began to stammer and said, Alexander, sir. The king burst out of his chair, grabbed the young man by his tunic, stared him in the face and threw him on the ground and said, soldier, change your conduct or change your name. When we are created in God's image, but we have dishonored that image. That's what Romans 3.23 says. It says that all have fallen short of the glory of God. And sometimes we can be trite just passing that off or thinking through it. I mean, there, there, but there is something that we are supposed to show and something that we failed to show and something that we have used against God and against others. We have failed to do the things we have created to do and we have acted as enemies to God in this. And so what is our hope then? I mean, we've soiled the image. We've defaced that image. We've misused it. And it's, it's not gone, can't be removed, but we've made it in such a horror in God's sight that the only thing he can do is destroy it. And that's except for Jesus. Except for Jesus, the perfect image of God who came to forgive and to reconcile us to God. I mean, consider Colossians 1, 15 and 16, where speaking about Jesus, it says this, he is, he, he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. Remember, Jesus is that perfect image of God who did everything that God had required of him. He, he fulfilled that perfect image on our behalf. 
Hebrews 1.3 speaks about that. It says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He lived the perfect life. He did all the things that God's image should do. And then in his death, that was the fulfillment of all righteousness. God poured out all of his wrath of his broken images on this one perfect image who was there on that cross. We want that image restored. If we want to do God's will, if we want right knowledge, righteousness, holiness, if we don't want those restored, we need Jesus Christ. That's what Ephesians 4 is about. That's what Colossians 3 is about. These passages we read, they say, put on Christ. He is the qualities of the perfect image of God. And if we're going to have them, it's because he is transforming us. It's because he's covering us. It's because he is making us holy. He is giving us knowledge of what is right and what is good. Through Christ, the image of God can be restored in us and for us. Through our faith in him, God sees his perfect standard fulfilled. Through him, God sees us as his perfect image. And through him, we can be restored to that pattern that God created us for. That's what Jesus has done. So we come to the Lord's Supper. That's what we celebrate in him and his work. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we indeed have misused your image to sin oh, in so many ways. So many selfish ways. Truly, it's an unspeakable evil. It is a great horror. But Lord, you sent Jesus. You have sent this perfect image of God. You have sent this one who lived as a perfect image of God. And God, it is through him that we have hope, the hope of forgiveness, of life, and to be restored to what we were created to be, and that we can see our neighbor to be restored to what they were created to be. Thank you, God, for the great work you did in Christ and help this word spread throughout the world. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, indeed, the Lord Jesus, the one who sat down at the right hand of